podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Menas Masterclass series, which is exclusively available to our elite-level Patreon subscribers and soon-to-be our elite-level Apple subscribers. My guest today, Greg Chappell, played 87 tests for Australia with the sublime batting average of almost 54, which is the sixth highest average of players that have played over 80 tests. He captained Australia in 48 tests and received the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to Cricket as a leading player, captain, coach and administrator at the elite level and for a range of charitable foundations. In 2019, when Greg retired from his full-time role with Cricket Australia, Kevin Roberts, the Cricket Australia chief executive at the time, said, Greg has had a profound and positive impact on cricket for generations. Greg was one of the finest players in the history of international cricket. Additionally, as a captain, coach, selector and mentor, Greg has been a true pioneer and innovator. His passion and commitment to the game are clear to anyone who has interacted with him. And Australian cricket is all the stronger for his involvement. Here is Greg Chappell. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Um, How are you? Yeah, good, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me. It's really a real honour to have you on the podcast. How have you um, enjoyed your time since you've stepped away from the game? Uh, mixed, I think, is the uh, the answer to the question. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time uh, in all of the different roles, playing, coaching, selecting, uh, and in the talent management role was, uh, was also enjoyable. I didn't uh, retire for full-time retirement. I, I felt the time was right to step back from, uh, from the day-to-day roles, but I did keep uh, a consulting role with Cricket Australia in the youth area, which has uh, you know been close to my heart for a long time. Sadly, March last year changed the environment, and uh, a lot of uh, well, all of the um, consulting work dried up. So uh, I'm pretty much forced into full-time retirement. I'm uh, I'm still sort of uh, working on a few projects, some cricket-related, some uh, elsewhere, because I don't want to be sitting around uh, twiddling my thumbs, and I. As much as I love my golf, I couldn't play every day. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a frustrating game. Do you have sort uh, of contact with the the modern players, or, or or do you try and sort of give step away from that now? Oh, now that I've finished in all the the roles with with Cricket Australia, I've pretty much taken a, a back seat. I you know I obviously was closely involved with uh, all of those guys as they came through the the system over the you know the last twenty years, but. Um, Apart from one or two who you know I remain reasonably close to and uh, speak to from time to time, uh, I'm pretty much out of it. Must be a little bit of a relief then to be out of the pressure cooker. Yeah, I didn't find it 
so much of a pressure cooker. I think you know, cricket has been a big part of my life for as long as I can remember. And you know, I always felt comfortable in the environment of cricket, whatever the role was. So, um, yeah, sure, from time to time the pressure builds up, but pressure is pretty much an internal thing. I, I think it's what you allow it to be. And because I felt comfortable in the environment, I, I never really felt that much pressure. That's nice to hear. On my last episode, I actually had Lisa Stalaker on the show, who's also part of the Chapel Foundation, that you do so much great work with. I I just wonder, in the last year with COVID, it must have been really challenging for you running the foundation, trying to um, get contributions. And at the same time, I would say COVID may have exacerbated the problem of youth homelessness. How have you sort of found the uh, last year for the Chapel Foundation? Yeah, it has been a challenging year, particularly for the charities that we support. We support seven charities doing really good work in in the youth homelessness uh, space uh, and homelessness generally and they are all under pressure getting more and more demands for their services than ever before and I don't think we've seen the end of it yet. <clears throat> Obviously JobKeeper and, and so on has, has finished and I have no doubt that that probably kept a few people going. We were lucky last year in that we got our annual dinner in Sydney in early. Ricky Ponting could only do it early in the year before going to the IPL. So we, we had it in February. Had we had it in our normal slot of April, May, uh, that would have been problematic. But that is our biggest fundraiser for the year and, and it was a particularly successful evening with Ricky as our, our special guest and he was fantastic. Um, we've got um, current captain Tim Payne in early May or actually it's May uh, next week we've... Um, Start May, so May the 12th, we've got our dinner in Sydney and, and Tim will be our special guest and uh, we've had a sellout. So a couple of other functions we had to put off. Our golf day didn't go ahead last year because of uh, COVID, but the dinner pretty much uh, covered what our needs were uh, for the year and one or two um, very special donors such as John Singleton uh, definitely helped us through last uh, year. So we were able to increase our you know, support to our charities last year, and I'm hoping that this year we can uh, continue to do that. Do you find it quite rewarding the work you do with the foundation? More so than I I thought possible. Um, you know, I've been involved in charities all of my adult life, um, from Leukemia Foundation and Royal Children's Hospital Foundation up here in in Brisbane from the early 70s. Then. Uh, you know, I'm a patron of the LBW Trust, and that's where I worked closely with Darshak Mater, who was chairman of the LBW Trust at that stage. And when Darshak stood down after 10 years as chairman of the LBW Trust, he, you know, he had a couple of years break. His, his wife wasn't well, and he was probably a bit uh, tired from, from his efforts. Uh, but thankfully, his wife's health improved, and uh, he got a bit of energy back, and he chatted to me about doing something in the chapel name, which I, I particularly wasn't looking to do. I didn't feel the need to do, but Darshak's a very persuasive individual and finally convinced me that it was a good idea. And we talked about the sorts of uh, charities that we would like to support, and obviously cancer and all of the the obvious ones came to mind. But my wife and I had been living in Melbourne. I was working at head office for Cricket Australia in Jolly Monton. We lived in East Melbourne and I, I used to go into the 
Fitzroy Gardens every morning for exercise and I really noticed that there were a lot of people sleeping rough in Fitzroy Gardens and middle of winter in, in Melbourne, not a great place to be sleeping rough. So, And a lot of them were appeared to be younger people. So that it came to me that that was something that I felt strongly about because you know when I saw these people in the Fitzroy Gardens, I was appalled that in a country such as ours, that there was anybody who didn't have a roof over their head. And when I did a bit of research, uh, well over 110,000 Australians don't have a place to call home and 45% of those are under the age of 25. And I just think that's unacceptable in a country like ours. So that became our our choice. And uh, it's obviously hit a nerve because uh, we've had tremendous support from um, not only you know people donating, but people like you know Ricky Ponting, Shane Warne, Kim Payne, and of course the great Jimmy Barnes did our, uh, our second dinner, and that was a hugely successful and in- enjoyable night. But to answer your question, you know when we started, I thought if we could help put one person, young person's life back together, that would be worthwhile. But thankfully, we're helping hundreds of young people, you know, to get their life back in order. Homelessness is not a choice it's usually something that happens to you and so yes it is uh, particularly rewarding and you know when we meet some of these young people that you know we bring them along to our annual dinner and when you see how far back some of these kids have, have started you realize how lucky the rest of us have been yeah definitely and i've been at the last two chapel foundation dinners and they're they're great evenings and i would encourage everyone to go to the chapelfoundation.com and have a look at uh, how you can get involved with that charity thanks andrew now um i I believe um you know it's really important in cricket in australia that the knowledge gained from previous generations is sort of passed down and i had a little bit of taste of it i was a a cricket coach at barry knight cricket camps for many years and I used to spend a lot of time with Doug Walters, Brian Tabor, Norm O'Neill at lunches, and they used to just pass on all this wonderful knowledge um, about cricket. And I'm sure that probably started for you at a young age. You would have knowledge passed to you from um, previous generations? Absolutely. You know, I think it's a really important thing to to continue. You know, there's a lot of stuff that, um, you know, the past players know that, it's important to um, to access. You know, we've got all this intellectual property sitting out there and we don't want it to go to waste because you, you don't want to have to reinvent the wheel every every generation so we can, you know, pass some of that on. I, I think it's important. I was lucky, you know, our grandfather was an um, international cricketer and, um, you know, we, we've had the opportunity to, uh, to learn some things directly from him but also from others, you know, friends of his from... From his era that I, I got to meet, uh, Sir Donald Bradman was chairman of the South Australian Cricket Association when I came into the game and was chairman of selectors for South Australia and Australia. And um, I got the opportunity to, uh, you know, get some information passed on from from him, which was very uh, beneficial. And as a young player, when I first started playing school cricket, you know, we'd, we'd have a beer at the end of the day with the, the opposition players and just sitting around listening to some of the the, the current and former test cricketers that were still playing talk about the game and just say it's amazing what uh, what you can pick up and and even just from watching them you don't necessarily have to hear from them uh, just watching the way they go about their preparation the way they play 
the sorts of things that they focus on, uh, I think, is really important, and you don't want those lessons to be to be lost. And I, you know, I, I hope that in the various roles that I had after my playing days, that I was able to uh, pass some of that information on to uh, guys who are currently running around, and, and no doubt they'll pass it on to the next generation. So. You know, really, when you think about my personal experience, um, you know, with our grandfather who played in the, the Bodyline series, you know, the link from us through him went right back to the very early days of cricket in Australia and, uh, you know, and Ashes, Ashes test matches. So uh, we want that link to continue. Yeah, absolutely. What what sort of things did um, your grandfather or Don Bradman say to you when you were coming through the ranks? What are a couple of the things that maybe stick out? Yeah, look, I think from our grandfather's point of view, I mean, he wasn't, you know, we, we weren't involved with him on a day-to-day basis. So it was only sort of a few times a year that at family functions that we'd get together. But, you know, little uh, homilies like, you know, not everyone can be a good cricketer, but everyone can look like a good cricketer. So, you know, he thought the way you presented yourself was um, was important. You know, he felt the game was, was there to be played uh, attackingly, that, um, you know, it wasn't your job as a player or a captain to go out there and try not to lose. It was a matter of going out there and look to win the game. So in his terms, lead the game rather than follow the game. I was lucky enough to get a piece of advice about my batting grip from Donald Bradman when I was a, an 18-year-old, which turned out to be very, very beneficial. I had a very, um, I was very much a leg-side player all through my, my school days and even into first class and, and even to test cricket, very strong leg-side player. But um, Donald suggested a change in my top-hand grip to improve my offside play and it had an immediate impact, and I used that grip from that day onwards. And so that was in, an important uh, piece of information that that he was able to pass on. But you know, playing under people like Les Pavel, who was captain of the South Australian team when I started, Les was a very positive and aggressive captain. So that sort of fitted, um, you know, the message that we'd received from our grandfather and our father. You know, Dad's messages. Dad was a, a, a first class, uh, sorry, a, a first grade. Cricketer had been in the state squad for a, a number of years. He represented South Australia at baseball, so he was a good sportsman in his own right. And you know, he taught us from a very early age that you had a bat in your hand for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to score runs. So, you know, he insisted that we play in the backyard or anywhere we played. We played it seriously and played with a hard ball, but he didn't give us any pads and gloves to play with initially. So. Um, you know, his theory was if you learn to use the bat properly, you won't need pads and gloves, so get out there and get on with it. <laughs> Certainly a good philosophy. Is there anything um, since you've retired that you've particularly wanted to give to the next generation, any sort of messaging? Not anything particular, other than I suppose if there's one thing that I learned very early, thankfully, um, in my cricket career, was that the attitude that you bring to the game is the most important thing. You know, sure... Your physical ability is important, but you take as a given that someone who's playing first-class cricket and above is talented and has has a method that works. Otherwise, they wouldn't have got that far. From that point onwards, it, it's between the ears, and um, you know, as I say, the attitude that you bring is really important. Um, you know, I learned very early on that it was important 
to think about what you wanted to happen rather than worry about what might happen. So being a, an observer of your thought processes is a really important uh, part of it. And it was a very big part of my my playing days. Um, you know, my mental routine uh, was critical to my success. And any period that I had um, failure, I could trace back to the fact that I got distracted and I'd got away from my my mental routines and you know started to worry about what was happening at my end rather than making sure that I saw the ball leave the bowler's hand. Yeah, it seems like you um, really sort of got interested in sports psychology before it was fashionable. And actually, Lisa Stalaker on the last episode said that you used to speak to her dad a lot about sports psychology because he was one. Um, what was yep. the, the sort of broad attitude like then at the time? Was was it sort of something that wasn't really um, you know discussed? It wasn't discussed, um, and you know I think in a in a sad sort of way, I, I think it was looked upon with a bit of disdain. Uh, that particularly that you'd look outside yourself that you'd need to find someone else to to talk to. You know, I didn't discover it on my own. You know, I, I used to read a lot. I went off and played county cricket for Somerset for a couple of years as a 19 and 20-year-old. And, you know, there was a lot of downtime uh, during cricket matches. And, you know, I found it was, you know, a little bit boring at, at times that there was so much time to fill in. Um, and I thought about doing, you know, some sort of distance learning, you know, maybe uh, look at some sort of extra education. But, you know, I wasn't that interested in the, you know, the formal sort of education. I wasn't that focused on the schoolwork. So I soon realised that I probably wasn't going to do well uh, at formalised education. So what I started doing was reading about successful people. And, you know, I started to realise that there was a lot more to their success than just luck or, you know, talent. In fact, you know, talent is overrated in a lot of areas. It's not always the most physically talented players that I've seen that have actually made the grade. It's those that have got obviously got some uh, special talent, but the ones who are just absolutely determined to succeed and, and disciplined and, you know, all the stuff that I've read, you know, every successful athlete, every successful businessman, every successful artist, you know, has understood the, the power of the mind and you know we've all got a superpower and unfortunately I don't think many people realize it and, and and therefore don't access it our imagination is the greatest superpower that anyone could ever have and you can picture yourself succeeding at whatever you wanted to do and once I learned that I stopped focusing on my physical training sure I continued to practice physically but I knew that I could practice for a thousand hours physically and maybe get worse. Whereas if I spend an hour a day just working on my thought processes and, and strengthening my mental routines, I, I could improve and I could add value to my physical talent. And from that day onwards, my, my cricket, my batting in particular, went to another level. You must have quite a bit of sympathy then for the modern player who's under immense pressure all the time and obviously mental health has become such a, a sort of important issue in the current players and you probably would have seen that um, working in high performance how young players come through this generation and you know they have real battles yeah and, and it's, it is a problem you know look i would willingly swap the pay packet these guys get to the one that we got but i wouldn't swap the era you know i, I think we played at a great time you know cricket <laughs> was very healthy um 
a lot of good teams around, a lot of com- good competition. And when you get to that level, you don't succeed unless you love the contest. And, you know, it, the thing for me was to pit myself against the best that was going around. And it, it, if you are trying to shy away from that contest, you know, then anxiety and all sorts of things can hit you. The other thing was that, you know, cricket was a pastime for us. We had a real job. So we were anchored in the real world and we occasionally escaped and went to Disneyland and played cricket. Sadly, you know, these guys don't get that opportunity. They're in the bubble for, you know, 10, 11 months of the year and uh, they're not necessarily connected to the, the real world. You know, it was very humbling to come back to work after a weekend of club cricket or shield cricket or a test match. And if you hadn't done well, you, your workmates would give you a workout. You know, they'd <laughs> you know, watch, you know, what were you doing? You know, so it kept you firmly on the ground, kept your feet firmly on the, on the ground. The other thing was that through most of my career, apart from the captain, you shared rooms. So you had a roommate and you weren't left on your own. And particularly if you had a bad day, you weren't allowed to go back to your room and, and sort of stew on it and have a bit of a pity party with yourself. Your roommate would say, come on, mate, we're off. We're going to have a feed or whatever we're going to do and you're coming. And there were times when you didn't feel like going. But thankfully, you know, your, your teammates and particularly your roommate would encourage you to get out and, you know, 10 minutes later you've forgotten about your woes and you have a, a good night, you go home, have a good night's sleep and you, you go back and try again. But, you know, with the guys, um, you know, the professionalism, full-time cricket, single rooms, they're left on their own a lot. You know, some of them have their own entourages at, at different times, so they don't mix as, as much with our with their teammates. Yeah, you know, when we went on a tour, you, our tours to England was six. My first tour of England was six and a half months, and mate, you lived with each other and you relied on each other through that time. And you know, I'm grateful that I had that team support. I don't think it works in quite the same way. So it, it is an issue. Uh, the game's well aware of it. Sport generally, I think, is well aware of it. But we can't afford to leave these young lads and young women on their own when things aren't going too well. It's interesting you speak about, you know, sort of going out and getting out of your hotel room. I heard Gary Sobers speak that he used to love going out and and having a good time after play. So he didn't overthink and he just came home, went straight to sleep, wake up and and play the next day and not sort of get too caught up in his own thoughts. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned Doug Walters earlier. I mean, Doug led a different life, you know, when playing cricket. I couldn't have lived like Doug Walters and and succeeded. I, I wouldn't have survived 12 months, I don't reckon. But for Doug, it was important. You know, if Doug had been, you know, in this era where it was frowned upon to you know, have a few beers and, and smoke a cigarette and have a late night, I reckon it would have done his head in, you know, being sent to his room at 10 o'clock at night not necessarily wanting to, but sort of forcing him to think more about the cricket and what was coming. It was a total relaxation for him to go and have a few beers, have a couple of cigarettes, and when he was tired, he went to bed. And, you know, he he managed to do that for the best part of 14 years and very successfully. So I think each individual is, is different. You know, I, I tried to keep up with Doug in the early days on a couple of occasions, and I soon mm-hmm. realised that, that wasn't for me. So 
you know, we didn't have curfews. We treated we were treated like adults, and if you learnt the lessons, you survived. If those that thought that cricket was the real world and and the rest was Disneyland, they were the ones that got into trouble. And if you focused on the nightlife, the daytime went to mud. So uh, you had to be conscious of what you were there to do. But yeah, you know, there were two or three nights a week when you're on a tour, even on at, at home in Australia, travelling around playing cricket. There were two or three nights a week where you could go out, have a meal, have a couple of you know drinks, whatever was your um, your favourite, um, and then go home to bed and have a good night's sleep. And I think it was a that's why I say it was a good time to play cricket because the cricket was good, but it was reasonably relaxed and it was left to you as a as an adult to um, work out for yourself what you could do and you couldn't do. Doug Walter sounds like um, he had some great times playing for Australia. <laughs> what was it like following in your older brother's Ian's footsteps? Because I actually was looking at this through the summer and Ian said that when you came into the side, he actually became a better batter. His test average went up. He, your 100 in your first test gave him a bit of a kick up the backside. What was it like for you sort of following in a – an older brother's footsteps who's been very successful? Oh, look, it was a blessing for me. I I was very lucky. Ian's five years older, so he was that step ahead of me all the way through and it was a little bit like Hansel and Gretel. You know, he was leaving the breadcrumbs and I I followed them. We were, thankfully, uh, all three of us were were keen on our sport and particularly our our cricket and Dad was absolutely passionate about it. When I look back on it, I realised that there was probably a bit of frustration for him, you know, he was 19 when the Second World War broke out, so a big chunk of his sporting career was interrupted. Uh, as I said before, he played state baseball for South Australia. He was in the state cricket squad. Probably a bit unlucky not to have um, not to have played state cricket. You know, he would have loved to have done that. He would have loved to have played cricket for Australia. So I think that some of that frustration was channeled into us, and uh, he put a lot of energy into our cricket. He had a he had a blueprint for what you know he told Ian very early on that um, Ian would bat number three for Australia, I would bat number four and Trevor would open the batting. So uh, he had a a grand plan and he worked hard towards doing it and thankfully it worked out. But, you know, Ian Ian has been my hero from very early on. I've followed him around as closely as I could as a youngster. Sadly, with the five-year age difference, um, you know, he wasn't particularly interested in having you know, a five and a six-year-old uh, involved in what he was doing as an 11 and 12-year-old. But thankfully, he must have run out of mates at some stage because at nine years of age, he uh, invited me to play in the test matches in the backyard. And they were pretty willing affairs. They were always Ashes test matches. The bad news for me was that Ian, as the older brother, was Australia and I had to be England, which no good. was a bit of a challenge. Uh, so I learned to lose for about five years before Ian moved on and I became Australia and then Trevor became England and I learned to win. So it was um, a good balance, serious cricket. Ian didn't take into consideration that I was five years younger, so he worked me over. But when I look back on it, those backyard test matches you know, taught me some things that became very important later on. Firstly, Luckily, I loved the contest. Otherwise, I wouldn't have stayed because he kept beating me and you know, he wasn't letting me win. Uh, so you know, I learned to compete. I learned to sort of hang in there when times were tough. 
And, um, you know, I learned to defend myself because when he needed a wicket, he could push off the side fence and hit the ridge at the end of our practice wicket and get it whistling around my head. So I learned to deal with short balls from an early age. Uh, as our father insisted, you know, it was always a hard ball. So, you know, we had to learn to uh, defend and, uh, you know, protect ourselves. Otherwise, we could have been in serious trouble. And, and that became pretty handy later on when the West Indies all turned up at once and bowled quick and short and whistled it around our ears. So I think the turning points for me were I would have been 13 when Ian got selected to play for South Australia. So that was a bit of an impetus in, you know, thinking, wow, you know, it's that close. You know, the bloke in the next bedroom is playing for South Australia. And then I was 16 when he played his first test match. And that really made a big impact on me because I thought, wow, now, you know, this is, this is achievable. I dreamt about playing chess cricket, but so did all my mates. But I I don't think any of us really believed that we would do it. It was just a pipe dream. But that pipe dream started to become real when the bloke in the next bedroom uh, you know, started uh, representing the state and then, then Australia. So he, his you know, leadership in that regard was uh, very important to me. I never felt like I've been in his shadow. I mean, it was always... I did make a throwaway line when I got my first Test 100 and um, now maybe uh, people will see me as Greg Chappell, not Ian's brother and Vic's grandson. But uh, that was only a semi-serious comment. Uh, I've, I've never really felt like I was um, was in his shadow, but I did benefit from having him in front of me. It's interesting. Wes Agar said something similar about watching Ashton play for Australia, that it did give him some extra belief that it was possible. Yeah. Do you sort of ever go onto YouTube and watch highlights of your own batting? I have done it. Um, when I've been, particularly as a coach, when I was looking for things, you know, I thought I did such and such. I, I went back to the video just to have a look and make sure that that's exactly, that was what I did. But I don't sit around watching YouTube clips. Thankfully, I've, I'm more interested in what's happening today and what might happen in the future than than what happened in the past. I certainly reflect on on that period and am grateful for the opportunity that it presented to me to um, excel at something. You know, I was very lucky at, at school. You know, we all went to Prince Alfred College in, in Adelaide and the headmaster, Jack Gunning, at the time was a former New Zealand test cricketer and, and he had a belief that not everyone was going to be an academic, that... You know, the school had to provide opportunities for them to excel in what they were good at. And for me, it was cricket, and I got a lot of opportunities. And And cricket provided me the confidence that didn't come naturally. I wasn't born with a, a whole bunch of confidence, and I didn't believe that I was going to succeed at anything, let alone cricket. But having success on the cricket field has helped me off the cricket field. And so... Along the way, you know, it, it's been a you know huge um, benefit uh, to me to have you know been lucky enough to get those opportunities. Do, do you think there was anything technical that was a key to your sustained brilliance at Test level? I mean, a batting average of almost fifty-four over such a long period is an incredible achievement. Was there something technical you think that sort of helped you? Uh, look, I think it goes back again to the mental side of it. You know, I, I learned early on, what well, we were taught early on from our, from our father, that our job as a batsman was to score runs. So thankfully, I grew up 
with the mindset that my job was to score runs and I was looking to score runs from ball one. You know, I didn't believe in this, um, you know, I've heard it said in modern times, but there seemed to be, um, you know, a mantra that went around in, in the day that, you know, the the first session is for the bowlers and then the rest of the day is for me as a batsman. Well, I'm not thinking that way. If they bowl me a half volley first ball, I better score off it because I mightn't get another one for a while. Or if they bowl a half tracker, I better score off it. Now, you know, I, I, it's been quoted back to me many times that I played in the V. Well, yeah, I thought about playing in the V. I thought about hitting the ball straight because that kept me in a neutral mindset and a neutral physical position. If you're thinking about a gap in front of square leg, all of a sudden you get to the point where you're setting up for that shot. And if they bowl a half volley around off stump, you're likely either to miss it or nick it. So for me, my scoring options in my mind were back past the bowler. But some days I hardly hit a ball back past the bowler because I didn't bowl anywhere. I could hit them back past the bowler. I was still prepared to score square of the wicket, but I didn't want to be thinking about those shots. So for me, my mindset was to see the ball leave the bowler's hand and hit it back past it and then react to what came. And I think the fact that I thought like that, it, it helped set me up in a way that was perfect to see the full ball. I was expecting the full ball and then dealt with what came along. If you start looking for short balls, you won't see the full ball leave the bowler's hand. So you're in trouble straight away. And if you don't see the ball out of the hand, you've missed most of the information. I have no doubt that I played with and against guys who didn't see the ball until it was halfway down. And I'm sure I've coached blokes that didn't see the ball until it was halfway down. That's too late. You haven't got time. It's hard enough when you see it leave the bowler's hand, let alone try and pick it up halfway down. So... I think it was the mindset and, and that mantra, if you like, of looking to hit it straight, expect the full ball and hit it straight and then deal with the rest. And, you know, what that allowed was it gave my conscious mind something to do, which it was good at, which was to watch the ball and expect the full ball. And it got out, got, then got the conscious mind out of the way to allow the subconscious mind to run the program and react to what came. And I think the fact that I was able to score off most of the less than good balls that I received was what allowed me to to do what I did. At that level, you don't get many bad balls. So you've got to be able to score off the less than good balls. So if it's slightly over-pitched or slightly under-pitched or a little bit wide, you better score off it because there's not going to be many of them. And particularly when we played against the West Indies, they were bowling about 12 overs an hour. Half of them were short balls that were going through sort of chest to head height. And many of those you weren't going to, you weren't going to score off. So all of a sudden, you're down to six overs an hour. If you're facing half the balls, you're down to three overs an hour. So you've got 18 balls to score off in a session. Good luck. <laughs> With the best will in the world, you're not going to score quickly. So you had to be ready to score off those less than good balls. Otherwise, you were going nowhere and the scoreboard was going nowhere. The pressure was building. And, you know, Clive and the West Indians used that as a, as a weapon. They knew that you couldn't score quickly and the pressure was going to build. So if you couldn't remove yourself from the emotion, you know, and just deal with the ball leaving the bowler's hand, you weren't going to survive, let alone make runs. So I think that was where... 
if I had any advantage, that was the advantage. Yeah, Doug Walters always used to say when he was coaching, you've got to have the get out of get off strike shot. You know, the ball yep. just on your hip or just tuck it into a gap, get off strike, especially against good bowling. All right, Greg, we're coming to the end of our time. Just a couple of quick ones. What was sort of the, the most challenging bowler you faced? Look, I always say that Dennis Lilly was the best fast bowler that I played with or against. Tomo was the quickest. You know, Andy Roberts was probably the closest to Dennis Lilly that I played against at the international level. Malcolm Marshall, um, I, I only got Malcolm right at the tail end of my career, and but he developed into into a great fast bowler. Abdul Qadir, leg spinner from Pakistan, you know Michael Holding, all of the West Indian fast bowlers. Look, any bowler who bowled at that level could bowl and and was a danger on on their day. One bloke that I batted against a lot because you know he was an important bowler in in the England setup at the time was Derek Underwood. You know, and Deadly was a left-arm spinner, so to speak, but, you know, he ran 20 yards and he bowled at a pace that was faster than most traditional spinners. But he had such fine control, you know, of, of length and no two balls were exactly the same pace. He, he mixed up his pace all the time and yet never lost his, his length. You know, give a wicket with a little bit of moisture in it, a little bit croppy, and I would pick... Derek Underwood, before any other bowler, to bowl out any side that you want to know. You can include Bradman, Sobers, um, whoever you want, and I would back him to uh, to bowl the side out on the damp wicket. He he was difficult. You know, he was tough on a on a dusty wicket, but a slightly damp wicket where the ball would grip and pop a little bit. He was one of the most difficult bowlers to to face and. I don't, I've never looked it up, but he's probably got me out as, as, as often as anyone else in test cricket, probably because he bowled more balls to me in test cricket than anyone else that I faced. But we had some great contests. I won a few and he won, won a few. But he, he's one I always talk about when asked that question. He's a great bowler. I saw him play a charity match in England at Hambledon in the mid-90s. and yeah. He must have been 60-plus, and he still had it. He was bowling better than anyone else there. What about the best opposition batter you played against? Oh, Gary Sobers is the best cricketer that I've ever seen. Best batsman, best all-rounder, probably one of the best all-round fielders that's ever ever played the game. I was lucky enough to play against him both in county cricket and, and test cricket. He, he played for South Australia when I was a teenager, so I got to see a lot of him, and, and he did some coaching when he was in South Australia, and I was lucky enough to be in some squads that, uh, that he coached. Um, so, you know, and, and just a great human being. Uh, you know, I, I had a chat to him uh, late last year, the last time I spoke to him. I rang him in Barbados and had a had a chat. He, he's uh, just a wonderful human being and was just the most amazing cricketer. Viv Richards, also just an incredible um, player, could change a game in, in a session, take a game away from you in a session. You know, I, I always talk about Jarvis, me and Dad, probably being one of the best players of you know, short, fast bowling from the subcontinent. He actually loved fast bowling, which not many from the subcontinent did because they were brought up on low-bouncing wickets. You know, I think he was uh, he's underrated as, a, as an international batsman. But again, you know, anyone who played for any length of time at that level was a serious player. You know, I, I look back at a, a fellow like Rowan Canai, who perhaps was in the shadow of Sobers a bit, but 
Canai was one of the best players that uh, that I played against. Dashing, batsman, courageous, took on the fast bowlers, the blade spin really well. You know, so uh, and you know, I, I'm a little bit biased that the bloke in the next bedroom wasn't a bad player either. And mm. probably one of the best players of spin bowling. Uh, you know, Ian was a a great player of spin bowling. And, you know, I learned a lot from from watching him play. I bet. All right, last one then, Greg, before I let you go. What do you think about the state of Australian batting at the moment then? We've got, you know, Steve Smith, Marnus Labashain and, you know, youngsters like Cameron Green coming through. What do you, what do you see? And um, Pekoski as well, I think, uh, you know, an extremely talented young young player. You know, I, I think, you know, we're in, we're in pretty good shape. Um, it'll be an interesting Ashes series coming up. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that because England has a good bowling side. We have a good bowling side. It'll be a battle of you know who makes who can make enough runs to allow their bowlers to win. And I think we'll be pretty well placed. I, I'm a great fan of Cameron Green. I think he's a classical batsman. Um, you know, six foot seven. I've never seen anyone six foot seven bat anywhere, let alone bat well. This kid could be a superstar. Steve Smith is a superstar, obviously, and Labuschagne's one who, you know, his innings in the Shield final, you know, was uh, was exceptional. He's gone to another level. You know, we've got, you know, three or four really, really good players there. And as I say, Will Pekofsky, if he can get over his injury problems, uh, knows how to make runs as well. So, if we can get them all fit and in form, uh, I reckon we've got an edge over England. Well, I hope so. It's going to be a riveting summer, no doubt. Greg, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute honour to interview you and chat about your career. I have to say, I I interviewed Ian a couple of years ago and I was really nervous when I rang your older brother, but I was a little bit more (laughs) relaxed today because I know you're different characters, but Ian was great. But yeah, so thank you so much. My pleasure, Andrew, and good luck with your podcast. Thanks for subscribing to our Patreon page. We really appreciate it. And for listening to this edition of Mena's Masterclass. Back next month with another interview. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Sports Social Podcast Network.